We are wrapping up our Better Together sermon series uh, here from Pastor James Den. Come on. Come on. Come on. There it am. All right. Let's open our hearts to, to hear and receive God's word. Amen, amen. Hey, uh, would you guys stand with me real quick? Thank you. Wow, that's really, that's really loving and honoring. Thanks for standing, but uh, I actually want to honor Mark. Uh, this is a man uh, that, that I've been really impacted by. Uh, he just had a birthday. Um, and so I just want to honor him. He's a father in this house. Um, and uh, just thank you, man. Thanks for all the love that you pour out, the sacrifice. Uh, this is a man worthy of being uh, led by, so thank you for that. Uh, you guys can sit down. Thank you. Um, but we, I just wanted to honor you. Uh, really look up to Mark. I was actually having a conversation with Mark this week about uh, a combo I was having with my, my little Sayla, my little daughter. Um, uh, I was lifting something. I don't know what it was, but she's like, Dad, you're really strong. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you think I'm strong. It's a great feeling to feel like you're strong in front of your daughter. Um, and I'm like, yeah. And I decided to try to stoke my ego a little bit more. And I'm like, do you think I'm the strongest person in the world, Sayla? She goes, you're really strong, Dad. I think Pastor Mark's stronger, though. <laughs> Amen. Come on. I love that. I love that. I love that my daughter looks up to me. I love that my daughter has other people that she looks up to. I love that we, as humans, often have the blessing of getting to have people in our life that we look up to, um, that we aspire to, that we're encouraged by. Um, it's, it's even one of the joys of being young, of being a young person who's having, like, heroes. Um, I was thinking about this uh, as a young person, the heroes of my own life, the heroes that, that uh, I was inspired by, you know, the superheroes, uh, Superman, you know, or Batman or whatever it was. But this is, this is uh, his name is George Reeves. He played the original Superman in like the TV show, old school. We're going vintage here. Just wanted you to see how poor those colors are, nice and grainy. Um, people are like, what is that? Um, for me personally, uh, I, I loved humor as a kid. Uh, my home needed a lot of humor uh, because of the reality of the home that I grew up in. And so I loved to be funny. I was really inspired and kind of one of my life heroes is Robin Williams. You know, the genie, Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, he seemed to carry this, this, this essence of like being a good person who's also hilarious. Uh, and I really looked up to him and aspired to be that kind of person as a little, as a little kid. Later on in life, I got into music. Um, I really wanted to be a rock star. And this, this uh, musician came on the scene who was kind of merging like, like, like alternative rock with like a little hip-hop-y kind of thing. Uh, Chester Bennington, uh, the lead singer of Linkin Park. I used to have plugs just like that. If you see the, uh, the remnant of the hole in my ear, uh, was a guy I looked up to, not because of his character necessarily, but because of his success. He, he had arrived. His music was what was allowing him to make money. People wanted to be him or be around him. Um, and now as a parent, uh, I find myself trying to find those people, uh, even for the sake of our family and for the sake of our kids, uh, not just heroes in the faith, but just generally good role models and people to look up to. And we, as a family, one of our pastimes, something we really love, is to watch So You Think You Can Dance. Uh, just, it's, it's incredible to watch people um, display their talents, and I'll never forget 
um, watching this person come on the scene. His name is Twitch or Stephen Twitch Boss. Uh, incredibly talented man. Uh, there it is. <laughs> that I really looked up to and like really loved that my family looked up to. Uh, a man of color, uh, a family man. And I was like, oh, this is a guy that's like worth aspiring towards and being excited about. Um, all of these people embodied uh, this idea in my head of arrival, of success, of what it was to make it. And all of these people also embodied this painful reality of loneliness. Every single one of the people that you see up here took their own life at the height of their success. Why does that happen? We are lonely people. <laughs> we don't talk about it a lot. Webster defines loneliness as uh, an unpleasant emotion, excuse me, an unpleasant emotional response to perceived isolation. Notice that it isn't actual isolation, it's perceived isolation. It's the feeling of being alone, no matter how connected you are to people, no matter how in proximity you are to people, no matter how life on life you are with people, the ability to feel alone is real. I'm sure all of us, like the silence in the room alone lets me know that all of us have felt that. Maybe you're feeling that, I don't know. Because we've all chased after these pictures of arrival, these pictures of what some would call the American dream, right? If I can look successful on the outside, if I can have the spouse, if I can have the two and a half kids, if I can have the career, the 401k, the retirement, if I can look like I've arrived and had it all together, then at least people wouldn't have to know the real things about me. And maybe at least I could hide from myself in that place as well. Right, this American dream, uh, I would say, as I look at it, and as we've studied the generations that have come before us, uh, I would say I sit specifically, I'm going to be 40 this year, and I sit on this weird intersection of like knowing very well the American dream and seeing a, a reaction to it that looks very, very much like something different. But looking at the American dream now, uh, where I stand, I see that the American dream has developed into nothing more than a nightmare of loneliness played out on like a hamster wheel. Just never stops, never ending, keeps going. Right, this belief that success and having it all together in the perfect family uh, is beginning to lose its luster even in our culture. Right now, people are dis becoming dissatisfied with that, no longer chasing after that dream. And that's a good thing uh, because the cracks have really started to show. If you turn the news on, if you look at, um, and I'm not just talking about in the world, if you turn the news like Christianity Today on, you'll start to see... Um, Leaders that were once thought of as infallible and untouchable and, and hearts after God, you see their lives crumbling, right? And you see it in the world outside of Christianity as well. People who we thought had it all together, they had arrived. Their lives are crumbling, some of them to the point of even taking their own lives and their own despair and loneliness. And so we're shifting now into this really interesting new version of the American dream, 
like the generations, I would say my generation and any of those coming up below me are starting to graft to this new American dream. And I would say that we title it authenticity. If we can just have authenticity, we will have arrived. We're so tired of hiding behind the facade of arrival that now we're saying my unarrival is the best thing about me. I hope you're not getting too uncomfortable because this was uncomfortable for me this week. I just want to be real about that. We're saying like, no more will I pretend because I am who I am. If you're a Jesus follower, I hope that phrase sticks out to you a little bit. I am who I am is what God declares about himself. No need to be changed. No need to be formed by the world around him because he was the former the creator of the world around him. But our new arrival is to just say, I am who I am. No longer defined by arriving at some some arrival point, but instead by our preferences. Or defined by our pain, our trauma. My trauma will define me. These phrases like my truth and your truth were so authentic. This is who I am. Is a, this is a belief of us. This is who I am. How dare you have vision beyond my current status quo? That's like, that is the pervasive cultural narrative in our world. The notion that someone being changed through the influence of another person is now being viewed as harmful, as abusive, as colonialism, And there's good reason for it. I just want to pause for a second and say there's such a good reason that we have this 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 aversion to the to to being influenced is because so much power, so much prominence, so much arrival has been used to manipulate people, to cause pain in people's lives, to usurp power over people. So now our response to that is is authenticity. And I would say in a broken form. Because now our core belief is that the sum of my current self is infallible. So from the brokenness of of the American dream, we've now shifted into a hyper-protective, self-validating feedback loop called authenticity. That's just my definition for it. It's what I see in it. So much so that like this study just came out, uh, I think it was last year in the UK, uh, and they polled like fifth and sixth graders. Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right, my again, what like the things I aspired after, after, uh, which were very much the American dream idol: doctor, lawyer, uh, uh, space person, uh, astronaut. There we go. <laughs> Sorry, um, yeah, fire person. Like, just these were the things that I aspired to. The number two, hoped for job. Anyone know what it is? Just curious. Influencer, who said it? Somebody said it, I heard it. Influencer. Like this notion that as like a 17-year-old, the best version of me would be me arriving on the scene and being the one who sets the cultural narrative for the world around me. Whoo! <laughs> I remember being 17. I do not want that guy influencing me. I'm just going to say, and you don't want him influencing you either. I promise you, I would protect you from him. I would, like with my life probably. 
Yeah, and so we have this new idol. It's just a replacement. We've just swung to the other idol. We're swinging to the other idol. And, and the interesting thing is it's, it's not changing anything. In fact, the generations that went before me would have said 30% of them would identify their lives as lonely. The American dream people. And now the generations that are coming after me, 61% of them would identify their lives as lonely. They're authentic, on display, I am who I am lives. And what I'm not trying to get at here is one is greater than the other. I'm just trying to get at the fact that like we are really good at creating places of hiding for ourselves. Authenticity specifically becomes the most dangerous form because authenticity is hiding in plain sight. That's why the numbers are higher, because you're actually around people. You haven't so immersed yourself into the, the dream you're chasing after that you're uh, ignoring somebody else, but you're actually uh, surrounding yourself intentionally with people as a form of hiding, so they don't see the trueness of the person that you are. And so we're in this interesting cultural moment because we haven't swung like the pendulum is kind of mid right now. Both of those things are still at play very much in our culture. We still have the American dream raging. We still have uh, the American dream of authenticity now, breathing new life or what I would say death. Still leading to loneliness and it's now becoming the epidemic of our culture. Right, the Surgeon General, it might be the former Surgeon General, uh, but just came out with this entire resource on their website. Like the, the head of medicine for the United States <laughs> is like now giving his life to this epidemic of loneliness and saying it, it will be the most catastrophic things we as Americans, and I would say the developed world in the West, will experience. More than any disease or anything else. And I, especially talking about authenticity, um, I just felt this notion that uh, it's really easy to hear that and begin thinking of them. Um, like, yeah, 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 like you're talking about a political hot button issue. You're talking about the LGBTQ plus narrative and, and gender politics and, and, and woke or not woke and left and right and whatever. I'm not. This today is a conversation for us, for this room, for this church, for my friends, <laughs> my family, for my community, for our community. This is a, an invitation for us as a people in this room to come out of hiding. Not for them to come out of hiding, but for you to come out of hiding and for me to come out of hiding. Here's the joke right now. The last two days, my wife and I have been uh, fighting to uncover the places that we've been hiding from each other. Like, Never say yes to preaching on vulnerability. <laughs> because, like, God in his goodness will just rub your face in your insufficiency. Like, this is me. This is like, we. I didn't sleep Friday night. Because <laughs> we had to, you know, uh, uncover each other, if that makes sense. And it sucks. <laughs> and I'm laughing because I'm like, oh, you're going to do my slides today. Boy, that's vulnerable. <laughs> Whoo! <laughs> I'm literally hot now. Um, let me throw this over there. Yeah, this is a conversation for us. This is a call for us to come out of hiding because the God we worship, the God that we love, the God who formed you, who made you, who dreamed about you, 
said that it was not good for you to be alone. He didn't just create one of us. In fact, he created us to know and be known. He created us to image him. To image God is to be in intimate relationship because God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and their, their unity in the Spirit cannot be broken. So that's what we're going to go after today. Let's, uh, we're going we're gonna to do that through the Bible and not my ramblings, hopefully. Ephesians 4, if you turn your Bibles there, bring your Bibles to church, because uh, if not, you don't get to test me, and you should test me. You should test my words, you should test the things that are said in this room, uh, and we do that through the Word, and so bring your Bible. It's just an invitation. It's not, it's not a conversation around shame or guilt. It's just an invitation. Ephesians 4, we're going to just look at Paul's words, Ephesians 4, 25. See, Paul is writing to uh, the, the church in Ephesus, trying to kind of explain the purpose and functionality of the body of Christ. He, really, this whole letter uh, is written to that, to that end. And in Ephesians 4.25, he kind of he puts a big stamp on it through the lens of vulnerability. And he says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as, it's, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Thanks, Paul. So we're members of one another. We are members of one another, not just for the sake of doing function. We kind of talked about that a little bit last week, the functionality of the body uh, through serving. And I would say yes and amen, that is a function uh, of the body. But the whole reason we are meant to minister together, the whole reason we are meant to serve together in the body is because it's a place where we get to know one another. It isn't just for achieving the objectives of the day. It's a place of knowing. So we're members of one another. And by doing that, that is our setting of reconciliation. That is where we get to be reconciled in our own selves as we open ourselves up to, other, to one another. Paul goes on and he basically says um, to do that, to, be, to, to interact with this ministry of reconciliation that is ours to both give and receive, we must put away falsehood, falsehood excuse me, and speak truth. He kind of speaks to this even a few verses before. In verse 15, he says, speaking truth in love. Here's what he's getting at. Quite simply, Stop pretending and be honest. Put away your falsehood and speak truth in love. Stop pretending that you're strong enough on your own, that you don't need anyone else. Stop pretending that you've arrived in your faith because of the things that you've done in the name of Jesus. Here's some hard ones to say out loud. Stop pretending you're not lovable. Do we really pretend that? 
Stop pretending that the things that have been done to you in the power of Satan is the full portion that God had for you when he dreamed you into life. And be honest. Come out of hiding. Come be restored. This is only possible when we step into vulnerability. That's because vulnerability is a kingdom strategy for your, for your uh, restoration, your transformation, your reconciliation. Right? Because as I'm saying, hey, stop pretending like you're not loved. You can't do that in your own strength. That has to happen somewhere. That revelation has to come from somewhere. It's sealed by the person of Jesus, but I want to take a look at where, where it gets rewritten. Okay? You want to take a hard turn real quick? Oh, one more thing. Let me just say this really quick. The, the phrase, put away falsehood. When, when I read that initially, uh, that felt like jarring, like shove down, you know, put on a good face, go fix your face. Is a, is a phrase that I've heard in my own life quite a bit. Uh, not lately. But um, <laughs> put it away, shove it down, cover it up. But actually the, the Greek word uh, for put away or to put off is actually to bring up and offer up to the surface so that it can be taken off. Okay? Put away falsehood. What's that look like? Let's turn to the book of John. I've spent the last two months in the book of John. It's been a blast. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to zoom into John 4 right now. A lot of us know this story well. And it's a ton of text. And I have 20 minutes. So uh, what I'm going to try to do is walk with you through the text. Normally I would like read this to you. And then we'd walk back through it. So keep this in front of you even as you leave here today and continue to search it out. But I want to try to walk through it as a community together. John 4, uh, we'll start in verse 5. Jesus is, is like the beginning, really, of his ministry. After one or two quick miracles, he's on the way with his disciples. And he's coming in, he's coming towards this town, Sychar, in Samaria. So he comes to a town, it says in John 5, uh, of Samaria. And I'm just going to pause right there before we even get into the story. As this story begins... Jesus leads with vulnerability. We haven't gotten anywhere. What are you talking about? The, the, the place that Jesus is walking into, intentionally walking into right now, is one of the most subversive places that existed in Jewish culture at that time. Right? This would be like the, the analog today of this would be like, I'm going to walk in to northern Syria as a, as a, as a proclaiming Christian, in the land of ISIL or ISIS. I'm going to walk into a land where I know uh, that there are people who would feel not only grateful to take my life, but actually feel like it's their duty to take my life. That's what Jesus is doing. So he's already just stepping into the story vulnerable because that's what he does. I don't, I don't know if we have grasped this about the gospel. And if you don't know who Jesus is, he is a God who chose to come to you first. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says this, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. Vulnerability is the red carpet of Jesus. It's what he walks in on, right? He empties himself literally of his godliness. I think we forget that sometimes because he did all of these godly things. We have to remember he was fully dependent on the Father and by, on Holy Spirit for the things that he was walking in. He was fully man. And in my, my just brain, when I think about it, I'm like, that's the most ungodly thing God's ever done. Like, by definition, he laid down godliness <laughs> to be my God. He started with vulnerability, and not only just in the way that he came in laying down his deity, but like he shows up as a baby, and if not for a 16-year-old little girl who feeds him and clothes him and bathes him, he would have died. Our story could have ended in the first months and years of the life of Jesus because he came, but he chose to come vulnerably, dependent on this sweet little girl who I don't know what she was thinking through this wild journey, but that's a sermon for another day. And so just by showing up, he leads in vulnerability. And the passage goes on to say it was about the sixth hour, right? If you're setting your watch to that today, you would call it noon. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. This is unusual at noon for a woman to come and draw water. Uh, just contextually, drawing water uh, was a, a communal thing. It's a place of community for the women of this, this era, of this time. This was a place uh, where on the way to draw water, they'd be complaining about their husbands or their children. They'd be talking about uh, the latest, you know, like headdress that they were wearing or whatever. Like they'd be, they'd be entering into each other's lives. This was the modern day equivalent to the break room conversation or the play date or the coffee hang. But here's this woman, not with those women, coming on her own. Not only was this a place of community, but this would have been a place of safety. Like literally they did this together to protect one another by, by the strength in numbers that they had. For the bandits alongside the road, for the wild animals that very much were part of everyday life. And so we can assume here that there's already some hiding at play in this woman's life because she's not partaking in the cultural norms and the relationship and being known. But here's what's neat is she still walks up to the well. Though she sees a man, which again, super inappropriate. We don't go talk to a man. That's not in this culture, at least in that culture. Um, <laughs> um, and she sees this man and somehow presses forward into, well, I need water. And I know there's a man sitting by the well, but here we go. Right? It's risky. It's a risky situation she's in. So Jesus says to her, continuing, this is like mid-seven, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Here we go, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Just note here, this is another step of vulnerability from Jesus. He's making his need known. Right? Practically, he's thirsty. Practically, he has nothing to draw water with. And he's willing to open himself up first and say, hey, will you, and I have a drink. Expressing his need. 
continues on. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answers, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, back and forth, hope you're keeping up. Uh, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. What's happening here? Weird well conversation, you know? Um, (laughs) So Jesus has just offered this woman eternal life. But in his goodness, maybe by a prompting of Holy Spirit, I don't know what it was, but, but there's this like, it's an offer of eternal life. But there's this further questioning. Because for some reason, eternal life is not all Jesus has for her. And so he digs in on the conversation around her husband. Because his desire for her is that nothing would be hidden. And she attempts to hide in plain sight. She attempts the posture of vulnerability, or excuse me, authenticity, my mistake. She tries to offer up the I am who I am dialogue. I don't have a husband. And Jesus sees through it because he loves her. And he's not willing for her to, to just have eternal life. He wants to see reconciliation happen in the life of this woman. And he says to her, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship with the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And we pick up in 28, it says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That's the holy moment in this story right here. Come see a man who told me all that I have ever done. She's finally starting to get it. That hiding is no longer her portion that there's so much more to her life than what she believes about herself. And she goes and does the most vulnerable thing that this woman could have done. Right? Think of the pain that this woman has experienced. The, the, the pain that she's experienced in community or lack thereof of being rejected. Think of the pain that she's experienced at the hands of, of men who likely have only grafted themselves to her for what they could get from her. Think of the pain that she's experienced from the women in this community who would be looking at her as a wretched excuse for a human. That's the place she goes back to And doesn't just say, come and see the man who saved me. She goes back to that place and goes, come and see the man who who told me everything I've ever done in his offer of eternal life. Who saw me fully 
I can come into this community and say, come and see the fullness of me because of what Jesus has done for me, not because I'm afraid of losing it and so I can't share it and I can't hide it. It's incredibly vulnerable what this woman does. And it goes on to say in 40, or in, I'm sorry, lost my spot, uh, in 39, that many of these Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Um, he told me all that I ever did. She was so willing to risk, like I'm saying, this last ounce of dignity, whatever it was she still had, for the sake of being known and for the sake of the story of Jesus being known. She risks wildly. And in 40 it says, So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves, and we now, excuse me, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I've never really picked up on this in this story before, but I love that they're in conversation with this woman at the end of the story. Like there's, there's a new story that's be, being rewritten in her life because what would make sense is for them to feel really awkward about her and her testimony because she's like, you know, maybe in our context, the weird on fire Christian that we're like, cool, I love that for you, bro. That's just not my story. That's just not my truth. But somehow her story of community is being rewritten here. She's being welcomed back into community and not because they all got it right. It's because she risked on vulnerability. It's a terrifying reality that this story is, is, is sharing with us. And that's, that's important to realize because we all come in so wounded. We all come in with so much pain, so much that has happened to us in relationship that the thought of stepping then into relationship, the thought of stepping back into a scenario that could that could cause the exact same pain that it caused the times before is terrifying. But when we don't do that, the wound gets scarred and calloused and thick-skinned and, and, and that part of the body actually resists those places. But when we bring our pain and our hurt into community, there's not, we do it kind of one eye open. I do at least, like I don't really know how I'm going to be received right now. You could just confirm all of my fears and doubts about humanity, but as an act of trust because of how God has sealed me, I get to come back into community and go, oh God, I have painful stories. I have painful father stories. I have painful friendship stories that need to be rewritten in my life. And I can be accepted by you, Lord, but for me to taste and see a new story requires another person. Does that make sense? So how do we do this hot mess of vulnerability? I think that's kind of what I'm hoping we can get at here a little bit practically. I'm going to take a drink. So sorry. I don't have a perfect answer because it is so messy. But a few things that I just kept seeing in this story over and over was that, one, we go first in vulnerability and two, we make space for the vulnerability of others. That sounds really plain and simple and basic. Like, okay, great, I'm going to go do that. And then you're going to fall on your face and discover how absolutely terrifying and hard that is because it, there's going to be other people in the room with you and they're going to mess it all up. I promise it's not you. Um, but that's what she does. So going first, she goes first. Jesus went First, there's this, this, these risks that we see all throughout the story, these risks for vulnerability, to be known and to know. 
She puts away eventually, takes a few steps, but she puts away falsehood. And she speaks truth in love. Finally, as, as, as the Lord comes and comforts her, she actually speaks truth in love to him. And I, I just want to say we, we have a, a half-right view of what speaking truth in love is as Christians. This is like a very Christian thing. We don't do this maybe outside of the Christian culture a whole lot. Um, we often believe truth in love is kind of the calling up of a brother or sister. When it's done bad, it's calling out. When it's done right, it's calling up. So like Mark and I, we do this daily, I think. I don't know. He calls me up a lot. <laughs> um, you know, and, and that's like a way that, that I'm loved by Mark and that I get to love Mark is, is when one of us starts to stumble, you know, Mark gets to look at me and go, James, then bro, like, I know that's not your true self showing up right now. Let's take a beat. Let's take a step. Because here's what I actually believe to be true about you. And maybe here's what's being expressed right now. And I'm like, you're wrong. Shut up. No, you're right. I'm just kidding. I love you. Thanks for loving me. Like, that's normally how that emotion cycle goes in, my, in myself. And I'm like, I'm blessed for that. But that's only part of what speaking truth and love is. The other thing, and we get to do this um, as well, but maybe we don't call this truth and love. The other thing that we're called to do as followers of Jesus is come and go, I'm going to come speak truth and love to you, but the truth I'm going to speak to you is the truth of my heart. I'm hurting. I'm inefficient. Can't get it right. I can't seem to try hard enough to get the result that I was promised with all of that striving. That is the other side of the coin of truth in love. Coming vulnerably, coming honestly, not just calling up another, but actually allowing ourselves to be put away, which actually means to be brought up and out. That's true courage. When you come to, to like a person, in this story, a stranger, like Jesus does, and you invite them into your need, you create a kingdom connection. And it's terrifying. But that's what happens. That's what's happening underneath the surface. And it's not a deficit on your part. It's a welcoming of their part. It's a, oh, Ooh, okay, I'm so glad you're here. You have something to draw water. True courage, uh, the root of the word courage, uh, the word cor in Spanish, corazón. Good, good pronunciation. Am I good, Jerry? I saw you questioning me. I love you, bro. Um, uh, the, the root word of core is heart, of courage, excuse me, is heart. The Latin word for heart. In one of its earliest forms, the word courage meant to speak one's mind by telling all of one's heart. And that's just not, here's my emotions and I'm an emotional mess. That is, what if I was fully honest and let what was in here, the fears, the doubts, the loneliness, the longings come out instead of filtering those up 18 inches through my petty little mind that tries to filter out, well, this is what they're going to think of me. And if I share this, I won't be able to manipulate them in this way because I've been pretending in this way or whatever it is that your mind begins to filter out from your heart. No, true courage is to speak one's heart. Which means, practically for us to be vulnerable people, we have to know our... Good, that's good. Hearts. We have to know our hearts. This is going to be really practical for a second. Um, that is a painful place sometimes for us to go. That is a hard place to really look in. It's a place that I avoid a ton because if I can just keep doing, I don't have to feel, right? 
Maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> um, and, but, but there's just practical ways that we can begin to uncover and know our hearts. Something I do personally is I begin to ask myself questions. Like, what am I longing for? What am I lo- like? What is what? Are, what feels incomplete in me? And I just try to figure out what am I longing for, and I pull on that thread because often the thing that I'm longing for seems to get skewed, and and distorted, and comes out of me in a really broken way. Uh, and just to that point, uh, John Mark Comer, "Live No Lies," really fun book. He words it this way: He says the devil's primary stratagem to drive the soul and society into ruin is deceptive ideas that play into disordered desires which are normalized in a sinful society. So in other words, I have these longings in my heart. I can't seem to force them to come true on my own, but I'll look, I'll have an idea or I'll see an idea in someone else that looks like uh, a slightly skewed uh, uh, copy of the longing of my heart and I will graft to it to feel better and to feel like that longing is being met, which is why it's so important for me to ask, what am I longing for? By asking that question, what am I longing for? I get to uh, kind of reverse engineer. I get to, to undo that system of isolation, of brokenness, of hurting. I ask questions like, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? Right now, I'm really mad at you. What am I afraid of? I'm afraid that this, that, or the other thing. Right now, I feel really unuseful to you. Why does that scare me? Because at the core of my identity, I want to be useful. <laughs> you see how, that, how quickly that starts to uncover the real parts of our heart that we try to put up facades and, and pretend to be people that we're not around? Um, there's a feelings wheel uh, that I think I threw up there. Perfect. Um, this looks like something from kindergarten, right? Well, that's good news because it's really easy to interact with. Uh, I actually printed some of these out, and they're at the back tables back there. Most of us are emotional kindergartners, self-included, so I invite you to embrace the reality of this tool because normally in my Cro-Magnum self, I'm like, what's wrong with you? I'm angry. Why? And so you can dive into, man, I'm angry because I feel let down or I feel humiliated and because I feel humiliated, I actually feel like I've been disrespected or rejected or ridiculed. It's like a pathway into your emotions. Please don't dismiss it. I know it seems silly because most of us don't want to actually feel. So sorry about that, Amy. Um, I knocked her papers down. Um, it's just practical tools. You have to know yourself to be vulnerable. And the good news about this reality is let's just, let's just, Zoom out for a second and remember who our God is, right? As you, as you go through this journey of knowing yourself, you'll painfully realize you require a lot of grace. And that's our good news. That grace has been given freely. That grace is yours. That grace is what you're sealed by. So the thing you've been hiding from is the thing that's been provided up front the whole time. You get to be insufficient. You get to be vulnerable. The second thing, so we go first. We go first into the, into the places of community. We go first into life group. Even when no one else knows how to be vulnerable, we go first. And then the second thing, hopefully we learn from that a little bit and we begin making space for others to be vulnerable. 
I had said it kind of earlier, but relational pain can only be rewritten in relationship. It's the only way that it happens. Now, what I'm not saying is go back into abuse. I'm not saying go back uh, into harm's way, right? Like the only way I learn how to cross the street is to cross the street. If I get hit by a car crossing the street, the prescription to that is not go run in front of another car. The prescription for that is go back to the crosswalk, take in a little bit more of your environment, and learn how to cross the street correctly. Does that make sense? I hope so. That just popped in my head. Crosswalks. Who knew? Um, <laughs> yeah, and so that gets rewritten in relationship, and it's an absolute dumpster fire. It is a hot mess, and you have to lay down your expectations for community. Because if you hold on to them, this is what Bonhoeffer says. Bonhoeffer is like, so you, had, you have Comer right now, Scazzaro was before him, and then you go back hundreds of years and you got Bonhoeffer. Um, not hundreds. Uh, some good years. <laughs> another, another generation, excuse me. Bonhoeffer says this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. It is a dumpster fire, and you've got to learn to love it. Thanks, Bonhoeffer. <laughs> Which means we create those spaces ourselves. We are the champions. We are the leaders of vulnerability. I can't be the leader of vulnerability in your life group. Mark can't be the vulnerability leader in your life group. It's you and you and you and you and you and you. And you, and you. It's all of us as individuals who go first, who know we're going to miss it, who know we're going to fall on our faces in the process and continue to pursue it because we've been given a ministry of reconciliation because we as a community are meant to image a living God that exists in intimate knowing and being known. That's who we are. It's the secret sauce of the Christian walk. And when you press beyond what you think you're capable of, what feels comfortable to you, you get to discover some of that beauty just for yourself. That's been my story the last year. Woo, God has been showing me how to press beyond what I'm comfortable with <laughs> uh, as, it leads, as it pertains to not just leading, but just being part of a community. You can ask anyone that I'm in the discipleship training school alongside. That has been my story. I am learning how to be vulnerable more and more. I'm learning that if I just stop and listen half the time, that alone creates space. I'm learning that instead of fixing someone's life, if I just learn to feel their pain and offer a truly heartfelt sorry, that can change things. Not, oh, I'm sorry that happened to you. But like my heart is brought to sorrow. That is what sorry is. My heart is broken by your pain. And even one step further than that, I've been learning that if I learn how to go, oh, I caused that. I'm sorry that I did that. Woo! The floodgates open up in relationship. True knowing and being known comes to life. And the upside of that is we get to build a true community that builds true community. That we don't just build gatherings. That we don't just build uh, works in the name of Jesus. It's one that gets to be built on common unity in the Spirit of God. It's one that, that are members of one another that lays down falsehood and that speaks truth and love. That's what I am burdened for, for this house. And one of the, I'll just share a little vulnerably, one of the, the just pains for me this week 
<clears throat> that I had to uh, walk in with my home, my wife, um, is, is what if that doesn't happen here? And I'll just say as like a person who's a member of this church, I want that here more than anywhere else. And I just feel, and this is just, I'm just bringing my story out. I'm not trying to to use it for any other uh, reason, except I'd love to be known a little bit in this moment. I'd love for you to know that my time is running out here in this community because we are moving. And I want to see as much of Jesus alive in this community as I can see, because this has been a gift. One of the greatest places of joy for me. And I also see that God has so much more for us. I also painfully see the hiding that takes place in this room as I meet with individuals week in and week out. And I find out um, that there's all of these areas that they don't believe they can actually be known in, even though they're surrounded by people. I want that for us. I want that for here. And so that's the invitation. It's to go after that as a community together. I'm way over time. So I'm just going to wrap it up. I'm going to invite the band up. And really, we do this thing called response. Uh, After some knucklehead gets up here and tries to preach the word of God. Um, Talking about me, not Mark. Um, (laughs) And I just want to be clear. and we try, we like get before the Lord, we come before Holy Spirit, and we say, Lord, what are you doing? What do you want to do today? And I've got some ideas to that end, but honestly, the invitation to respond is to respond to what it is that God's doing. Like, what were the uncomfortable things that came up within you? What were the things that you were like, yeah, that has happened to me, and, and I'm actually still really hurt by that person? What are those things that are coming up? Those are the things that you get to respond to. I'll throw just a few up on the the screen here that might be for you. I'd say one, this is a great invitation to just go ask for prayer. If you're feeling the pain of this conversation, go bring that pain to another person filled with the Holy Spirit and bring it to Jesus together. It might also just be like, hey, tapping on the shoulder of someone here, can we talk after church? Like, let's pray, but like, I'd actually love to talk to you. I'd love to like get to share my heart with you a little bit. And the second possible way that you could walk forward and just take steps in this, there it is. Um, I just felt this in my spirit this week that there might be an invitation uh, for ownership in our community. Um, I think there might be an invitation to come to individuals in this room and say, hey, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry that your vulnerability made me uncomfortable. I'm really sorry that I've hidden myself from you. I'm really sorry that I've called myself your friend, but I've co-signed your dysfunction or I've been willing to not address it while we spend time together. Those are okay things, and that's what it is to speak truth in love. This is the level of vulnerability that is required to actually experience reconciliation in the kingdom of God. So that's my invitation. I'm going to pray, and I'd love for us to maybe just take a portion of a song and just invite Holy Spirit, do you have something for me in this conversation? Is there a place that you're inviting me to go? Yeah. So we trust you with that, Holy Spirit. We trust you that um, on one hand, uh, you can completely wipe my words from the minds of the people in this room, that, um, that you can come in and protect our community from anything uh, that felt even harmful from what I was saying. But on the other hand, 
You can call us in. You can begin to pull on our heartstrings. Uh, you can begin uh, to invite us into restoration and with one another that you can remind us of this kingdom that you were looking to build, uh, not, not like a stadium uh, performance center, but an actual kingdom where our eyes were looking at you, but we were also members of one another. Yeah, show us your vulnerable ways, Jesus. We trust you. We might be scared, but we trust you, Lord. Amen.